that we may follow him. Amen. Amen. These days, when we think of borders, we might do so with fear or trembling. The very word borders evokes images of refugees from Syria fleeing across the border into Turkey, of rockets firing across the border from the West Bank into Israel and from Israel back into the West Bank, of skirmishes along the newly forming border between Sudan and southern Sudan, of illegal immigrants crossing the U.S. border from Mexico in the darkness of night, of Canadian immigration officials being vigilant against U.S. citizens who overstay their visas in Canada. We live in a world that defensively draws borders and fiercely defends them. We control who crosses these borders, and often violence erupts around borders. We might feel very different about the people who live inside the borders and those who live outside them. In our time, crossing borders may feel like a risky thing to do. But in the time of the gospel, crossing borders was commonplace and good. Recall with me the traditional stories of our spiritual ancestors, and you will remember that we are defined as people who persistently cross borders. Abraham crossing over from Mesopotamia to the Levant, Jacob crossing the Promised Land to Edom, Ruth crossing from Moab to the Levant, Joseph crossing from his homeland into the relative safety of Egypt. Jesus' own family crossing over from Israel in the north to Judah in the south. And later, Jesus' family would do what families always did when they were threatened by famine or physical violence. They would cross over out of that promised land into Egypt. In the ancient world, people traveled the paths and roads of commerce, seeking food, shelter, safety, and a trade to live by. In fact, Matthew's gospel, which we heard today, portrays a world in which borders should be crossed. By the time of the writing of this gospel, the followers of Jesus had spread far to the east into modern-day Syria and beyond, to Nisibis, Mosul, and Tikrit. These are the ancient cities of Iraq that we now associate more with recent wars than with the spread of Jesus' gospel. Other followers of Jesus would continue along these ancient trade routes to modern-day Iran, and as far as India and China. And yet others of Jesus' followers would cross over to the north, to modern-day Turkey, Greece, and Spain. 
The good news of Jesus was not something to be contained in the valleys of Israel, as if it were some treasure to be hidden. The good news was not a valuable valuable thing to be stashed away behind lock and key. Rather, the good news of Jesus was to be offered to all people, spilled out to all the nations. The good news of Jesus was to fulfill the ancient prophecies that people from all the ethnic groups of the world would be gathered up in God's generosity to God's holy mountain for the purpose that everyone might know themselves to be children of God, so that everyone might know themselves to be recipients of God's peace. In the time of Matthew's writing, the worst outcome for the gospel would have been that it would be contained within borders. No, rather, Jesus' good news was good news that should be cast extravagantly across the globe, like seed thrown out from the farmer's hand, like seeds of hope tossed indiscriminately on all kinds of different soil. Sound familiar? For the good news that the Jesus of the Incarnation brought was good news for all people, not just people of one generation or locality. The good news of Jesus is a cross-border action, not a story that stays contained within the covers of a book. And woe to us as the church if we forget that the gospel is a cross-border action that demands our participation. Woe to us if we try to contain the gospel in the pages of a book. So given this cross-border theme of the Gospel of Matthew, it's not terribly surprising that one of the major signs of God coming as human is given by three persons who cross a whole bunch of borders. Matthew recounts it this way. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem looking for the new king of the Jews. They were astrologers, and they had reported that their analysis of the stars showed that a new ruler had been born for Judah. These three magi came as representatives of some foreign lands to give their respects to the new ruler, who was Jesus. Now, early in our Christian tradition, it became customary to translate the Greek word magoi as wise men, even though they may not have been very wise, and they might not have been men. The word magoi is the word from which we get our English word magic. But these were no sleight-of-hand performers in the tradition of Houdini. Rather, these magi were more like academics who were schooled in the philosophical, religious, and scientific disciplines of their homelands. 
In the modern day equivalent, it would be a little like three deans from the College of William and Mary going to welcome the new chancellor of Cal Berkeley in California. <laughs> Although we don't know much about these magi, Matthew makes two things clear. First, they are from the east, and second, they are not believers in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Most likely, they were monotheists, as all the major religions of that day had evolved toward monotheism and maintained one God. But even though these magi were likely monotheists, they would not have believed in God as Jesus' mother Mary would have believed in God, or even as Jesus' father Joseph would have thought of God. Now, it may seem remarkable, even a little scandalous, that the Gospel writer Matthew features non-believers as the key witnesses to God's presence in human flesh. On the other hand, isn't that just like God? Isn't that just like God to be noticed by each and every kind of person and not be overly concerned about people's nationality or creed? Isn't this typical of a God, of God to be willing to speak through someone who doesn't have a correct understanding of God? Just as God spoke through Balaam, even though he was a pagan prophet in the book of Numbers. And just as God healed the centurion's servant, even though he most certainly was not a Jew. And just as God healed the Canaanite woman's daughter. Isn't this just like God, to be bold enough to cross borders for the sake of sharing the good news of his mercy and favor with all people. How like God to give a foretaste of healing and peace to people even if they are not members of the church. Today, we celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany. The occasion when three strangers with different beliefs than ours came to honor Jesus, who himself came as God to touch our human flesh and to bless it. And just as these three magi crossed many borders to present their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the newborn king of heaven, so in the incarnation, God crosses that great chasm between divinity and humanity and makes a bridge for us to walk into heaven. The magi who cross borders point to the God who crosses borders. And it is this cross-border God who, in Jesus, will pick up the prophecies of Isaiah and say to his people, and to us, are you getting busy crossing borders? Are you taking care of the orphan and the widow? Are you loving your enemy? Are you doing good to those who curse you? 
Are you willing to cross a border or two to enter the kingdom of heaven? Oh, that's the question for us, isn't it? Are we willing to cross a border or two to enter the kingdom of heaven? Now, this may seem like too great of a challenge on Sunday morning. You might be thinking, hold on a minute. I just woke up and innocently came to church. I hadn't planned on crossing any borders. I hadn't thought of myself as an agent of God's grace, a person anointed to make real the good news. Surely God understands that we are citizens of the nations, and as such, we're trapped in our systems of government and economics. Surely God knows that I can change my own life, but I can't change the system I'm part of. Surely God understands that I can't make Congress work, (laughs) that I can't create jobs for people, that I can't lend on terms that are below market value. Well, yes. I'm sure God understands, and I'm reasonably sure that God has compassion toward us. But I'm more sure that while God understands, God expects something different of us. That God expects us to be cross-border people who are willing to see ourselves not as citizens of earth, but as citizens of heaven. I am sure that God expects us to be transformed in the light of Christ's incarnation, rather than being conformed to the status quo. I'm sure that God expects us, like the three magi, to follow the star. So I encourage us all to use this five-week season of Epiphany as a time to follow the star of Jesus and let it take us across the borders that may seem to hem us in whether those borders be regional ones that pit northeast against the south or economic borders that pit people without a living wage against people whose wealth needs to be managed. As a practical example, I will tell you that it makes me proud, though sometimes a little tired. It makes me proud to be part of a church that will always do its best to extend Christ's ministry to someone regardless of whether the person is a member. A suffering person is a suffering person. A person grieving a death is a person who is grieving. A person without shelter is a person without a home. A person who wishes to pray is a lover of God. And a child of God is a child of God and all are citizens of heaven. I pray that we each have the courage to follow the star of Jesus and be transformed as citizens of that heaven. Amen. Amen.